welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Amber Campion is a trauma-informed yoga teacher and mindfulness-based life and leadership coach. She is also the founder of the Dynamic Release Flow Method and the Fulfillment Formula. For more than a decade, Amber's work in the field of emotional intelligence, personal development, and self-discovery has led her to create embodied trainings, workshops, retreats, masterminds, and online courses, supporting anyone to bring their full self into the world. Amber is an experienced registered yoga teacher, along with hundreds of additional hours training focused on somatic therapy. She has received in-depth coaching training, trained in Reiki, neuro-linguistics programming, and continues to bring depth to her work through training in martial arts, improv, shadow work, breath work, energy work, and somatic therapy. Amber has been featured all over the world, including in Positively Positive, Thrive Global, Thought Catalog, Your Tango, and The Yogipreneur. Amber, what an honor to welcome you to Boundless Body Radio. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Casey. It's a total honor to have you on. My first question for you is like, is that it? That's all you do? Like, <laughs> that's it? <laughs> yeah, it's funny hearing my bio read and it's, you know, it's, I'm 42, but I started this journey when I was in my early 20s. So I've been in this wellness, we'll just call the umbrella of wellness industry for 16 years. So, you know, it gives you a, it's a lot of time to, to learn. <laughs> Suppose you've done a thing or two. I mean, cutting that down to get it to be as, as small as it was, was a real challenge. There's so many other things on there that we, we could have also talked about in your intro. You are a busy person. <laughs> I'm a curious person. That's what I say. I'm very curious. I love that. Is that something that's always been part of your character? Being curious? Oh, yeah. For sure. Well, I would love to hear your personal yeah. story. I think it's really interesting. Um, can you tell us what it was like growing up? Yeah. Oh gosh. Growing up, you went right there. Okay. <laughs> um, well, <laughs> I, so I guess one of uh, something that, that to note, I don't always share this, but, um, when I was little, I was, I had a neurological brain disorder. I was diagnosed with epilepsy as a child. So I had my first, uh, grand mal seizure, which is you, you, there's many different types of seizures. And most of my childhood, I was having petite small seizures, which are these really mild seizures. You might not even notice someone having a petite mal seizure. It really looks often like uh, someone's just spacey. And you can imagine when you're like little, like under five, um, and I don't have language to explain what's going on. I also don't really know that everyone else isn't having the same exact experience. How could I? I'm three, I'm four. I don't, I don't wow. know. I'm just starting to learn. So my parents thought I was just spacey, really. That's it. Like, a, you know, a little bit, um, maybe some learning disabilities. They didn't know. Right. But of course they're not like, Oh, she must have epilepsy. No, no parents going to go right there. Right. Wow. And then I think I was probably about five years old when I had my first grand mal seizure. Now those, while of course I have no memory of it, um, from what I heard are pretty, <laughs> pretty obvious. Apparently what happened to me is I turned completely gray and then got like blue polka dots all over. Wow. Like my mom said, it was like, and then you just, you throw up and you pass out and you shake. Wow. So that's pretty obvious, right? Yeah. It's crazy. Wow. It's crazy, right? How, how long yeah. did you have to deal with those? Well, gosh. Okay. So, <laughs> um, 
you know, it's interesting, but I don't always talk about it, not because of anything like, oh, I don't want people to know about this, but I, when I, so you're put on medication, especially when you're a young child like this, because you can only have so many of those seizures before you have permanent brain damage. And so you're put on medication. There's no cure for epilepsy. It's not like here, take this and it'll go away. Um, But you can take things to suppress the amount of seizures. And actually now, you know, this was so long ago, but now there are diets and all sorts of more healthy routes to, to try to suppress the amount of seizures you have. Um, and so I was on that, the, the suppressants, the medical suppressants, and you have to go to the doctors too, like once a month. Like I actually have really good memories of this. My mother, she was so good about this. She would take me to the hospital and my mom said I would skip to the nurse's office where I had to get my blood drawn. So I had to get my blood drawn once a month. Uh, they also would do these brain scans and on children, it's like, they just, um, like sticky glue that they stick in your hair. And I thought it was so cool to like pick the dried glue out of my hair. Yeah. Like, right. And then the nurse would draw a smiley face on my bandage. And then my mom would take me to the hospital store and buy me a gift. And it was, I actually remember my, one of the gifts, it was so silly. It was a magnet and it was, <laughs> it was the shape like a flower, but the center of the flower was a chef face with a chef <laughs> and I thought it was the coolest thing you know I'm like six seven years old when all of this is happening and I'm, my parents are trying to figure out how do we normalize this for her wow. you know and and maybe even make it so I actually have fun memories but to answer your question how long did I have to deal with this um, my family was not particularly religious they grew up, my father grew up Mormon. And so, um, I think like a lot of parents, maybe when they have kids, how do we, um, integrate spirituality into their life? And, and so often I'm sure parents just choose like, well, I was taught this, so maybe I'll teach this. So we did go to a Mormon church, which I got kicked out of when I was 12. That's another story. (laughs) But, um, when I was probably like nine, 10, still very little, Um, I don't have the ages exactly, but still little, my parents, I think like any parent, when your kid is sick, you're like, I will do anything. I will do anything. And so, um, the church had recommended getting me blessed and maybe that would help. And so they did, they, the whole, like the whole church came together. I remember there was hundreds of people there. I remember going up to the front of the church and um, these men circled me. So I couldn't see anyone anymore. I was just like this little person sitting in a chair in the circle and they all put their hands on my head and the whole church started praying. (laughs) I'm pausing because I know some people are going to hear this and think it sounds weird, but (laughs) this is what happened. And then I saw a white light and All I knew in that moment was I didn't have it anymore. But again, I'm so little, you know, you don't like, when you're this little, you're not like, oh, you're just like, oh, that happened. Right. Um, But anyways, years later, you know, you can't drive if you have epilepsy. And so um, when I was 15, I wanted to get my driver's permit. And my mom was like, "Uh, you know, you can't do that. And I was like, mom just trust me. I don't have epilepsy anymore. I just, I just know. And she's, you know, I've always been an eccentric kind of like, um, artistic, um, really open-minded, 
person. And I'm like, mom, just trust me. I just know I don't have it anymore. And she was really worried about me being disappointed. And she just said, I, you know, if we go to the doctor and we get this brain scan and you still have it, you just can't be disappointed. Like, and we went, we got the brain scan and they were like, she has no signs of epilepsy. She could move on. Like I used to have to tell people like every school I went to every friend, like I always had to tell people I have epilepsy because in case I have a seizure, all of these things. And the doctor was like, all that, you don't have to do it anymore. Wow. That is an and amazing story. And so it all story. ended. Wow. I know. That's so crazy. So yeah. I would have been, I would have been one of the dudes, um, with my hands on your head. <laughs> you were smart enough to get kicked <laughs> out at 12. I stuck it out in the church until I was like in my twenties. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's just, that whole story is just, I won't get super deep into it, but um, I'm a big girl. I'm six foot tall. And I had brought a friend when I was 12. And I always tended to have like friends that were bullied and pushed around a lot. I was too, but I knew how to defend myself. And, um, this girl was being really mean to one of my friends turned out to be the daughter of like, gosh, I don't even remember. Cause I haven't been a part of the Mormon church in so long. And I'm a very spiritual person, but I'm not a religious person, but we'll say whoever the head of the church is, it was his daughter. And, um, basically the girl was picking on my friend all day long. And then she like skipped the class where all the, you know, they send the kids off to their age group and they learn and she didn't come to class. And then I heard her outside saying something like, if I go in there, I'm going to beat her up. And I don't know what came over me, but I got out and I just opened the door and I punched her. (laughs) I guess I just was like, this is going to end right now. This girl's being so mean and so ridiculous. But anyways, when we went to our fathers, I'm being like really calm and obedient. And, and she's like cussing and like, it was so weird to see this, especially like in church. And, um, and anyways, the church was like, we think it's better if you guys don't come back. Wow. Oh, crazy. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, we just hopped right into storytelling. Huh? I know. This is great. This is great. They're great stories. I, I'm i curious. Well, first of all, I also want to make a point. It's amazing that we had all of this information in like the 1920s that a ketogenic diet could be used to help some kids with epilepsy. And by and large, yes. that, that information was lost for, for decades. And, you know, through the work of the Charlie Foundation and things like that, they started to uncover it again. And that's, you know, again, it's, it's something that maybe could be helpful or useful as an adjunct in certain situations and certain people. But yeah, you're right. It's interesting. We've learned so much about how diet can affect things like epilepsy in kids. Pretty crazy. Um, Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. That's awesome. So I'm curious, how did you start to develop your kind of current life mission and your calling in life? Well, I mean, you know, you bringing up my childhood, obviously our childhood really does shape and influence our choices. And so it's really interesting that I had this history with, um, you know, a neurological brain disorder and just there's some other stuff that all makes sense to me now as an adult that I ended up where I ended up. But when I was a young person, my, I was like, like most people, I don't really know exactly what I want, but I thought, you know, I'll be an artist. That's what I want to be. Like I said, I was a really creative, eccentric, expressive person And I moved to New York City on my own when I was 20 years old in pursuit of uh, becoming a photographer. So that's how I ended up in New York City. And again, this is like another very strange story that you can't quite explain. But um, my parents are both from Jersey. Uh, They met in California. 
And then they never really talked about New York City. They didn't, it's not like they worked in New York City or visited New York City, but they said as a child, I used to always say, I'm going to live in New York City one day. And they wondered how I even knew about it. Wow. But I always said it as a kid, I'm going to live in New York City one day. I'm going to live in New York City one day. And as long as I can remember, I just knew I needed to be in New York City. So I ended up moving there on my own at 20. And um, I now know that that was completely meant to be because I went there like, I'm going to be an artist, which I still identify as an artist and everything I create, I consider art. I just ended up in the healing arts, you know, a bit more. And I still write and I write poetry. I'm actually working on a poetry book, but it's all around healing, you know. Um, but New York City, when I landed there, I started to meet people that completely changed my paradigm about life. I started to um, really understand some of the trauma that was living in my body. And I guess the very first thing that ever happened was, you know, I worked for a photographer for a while, realized, okay, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. Um, I don't want to be in that industry. It, it didn't really quite fit with me. I got a degree in advertising and PR, which there's a whole big story about how that happened. But I was like, okay, I'll just, I'll go get a job in my degree and did that for a year. And, um, I met a woman who was an actress who also worked for, for this IT firm. I was doing PR for them and I had really, here's another thing. So I had chronic, crazy stomach stuff as a kid, like not having a bowel movement for two weeks straight. So also at the doctors all the time, trying to figure that out. Like, I remember going to like doctors where like, everyone's like senior citizens and I'm like, you know. 12 (laughs) and they're, they're giving me like things like Metamucil. They're just, you know, it's like, they have really no answer. And what's so funny now is like, ultimately what changed things for me was my diet and all those years, a doctor, a Western doctor never, ever suggested that. But anyways, this actress was like, maybe you just need to get a colonic. (laughs) And I didn't even know what a colonic was, but she told me and I was like, Oh, that's intense. But you know, (laughs) um, But, you know, I'll try it. And I went to this woman to get a colonic and my intestines were so impacted that she couldn't actually do it. She said it was like water hitting a brick wall. That's crazy. That's so crazy. That's like how sick I was. But I didn't even know I was that sick because I had just always been that way. That, That was how I had been since I was a child. So I just didn't know how bad it was. And so she said, you know, you've already paid and I've already done, you know, the dirty work. (laughs) So um, what I can do, though, is give you a holistic health session, a holistic health counseling session. So put my clothes on. She gave me the session, learned a little bit about my, you know, emotional state of being, my patterns with eating. She was very focused on, you know, I just need to change this girl's diet, which she was right. She taught me about things like kale and quinoa. I had never heard these words. Um, and just told me like where to go in New York city to get this stuff. So, you know, I was shopping at bodegas getting like white pasta and canned tuna fish and butterfingers. That was like my diet. Wow. And, uh, yeah. And, um, I just took to it. I like right away, something clicked and I, you know, bought everything she said. I started looking up recipes. I just, it just really clicked for me. I didn't have resistance to it. I was like, Yes. Um, and she said it would take a couple of weeks before I noticed. And she said, you might even feel worse for a couple of weeks, which is exactly what happened. 
I felt really bloated and really tired and lethargic and crappy for a couple of weeks. And then all of a sudden, and I'm just going to say it because we're already going there, Casey, but I just had this massive bowel movement. And then I had a bowel movement every day since. Wow. How amazing was and that? And so that, that was amazing. And that started for me, I was probably like 22 is when I started to have bowel movements every day. Wow. So 22 years of my life, I didn't. <laughs> and it was, I mean, so here, imagine that. Imagine 22 years of your life, like having a bowel movement, maybe like two or three times a month. That was my normal. And then going to having one every day. So my life changed. Like it wasn't just like um, my skin cleared up. My weight went to like my natural body weight. Um, the whites in my eyes, they were never white. They became white. Uh, so there was all this physical stuff that happened, but emotionally and mentally, what happened for me was mind blowing. Like I, all of a sudden had like my mood swings there. They weren't, Oh, that's not just me. Like that was the fact that I was so unwell, my moods, I didn't have these extreme mood swings. I didn't go into these deep, dark holes. Um, as often, you know, it was like, I felt like I actually had some semblance of, um, I'm trying not to use the word control, but at that time, that's what it felt like. Some semblance of control over my emotion and my creative, like I never realized how creative I was until then. Like I had all this energy. That's when I like started training. Uh, I trained for seven years, capoeira, Brazilian martial art. I picked up the guitar and started playing guitar again. I was learning when I was 15, but I kind of, you know, I never stuck with things like all this creative energy and writing poems and writing songs. And it was like this burst of energy just came out of me. And it was like, I, like anyone else, when you have something so magnificent like that happen, you want to like <laughs> sing it from the rooftop. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Which I can become, I will say like, at first I became a little bit like, um, where, where it's not like a, you know, you think e- you want everyone to do it because you've had such a profound impact from this shift, but it can become like self-righteous and pushy. And so you're not really helping people at first, right. <laughs> so that's how, how I was, but I ended up going to, so my very first education in the uh, realm of wellness was in my early twenties. I went to the Institute for Integrative Nutrition in New York city And that was the beginning. And for many, many years, I thought I would just be focusing on the food realm. Um, But life kept, life kept opening up deeper and deeper. And now here I am today working much deeper than with food. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's so cool. What an amazing story. I I don't want to miss this. Um, It's a bit of a tangent, but I, I, I get so curious about this. It's so easy for us or a lot easier to look back on our life, look at all the things that quote unquote kind of went wrong that ended up going absolutely perfectly that set us up to be where we are today. So why do I spend so much damn time worrying about what's going to happen in the present moment or in the future? Like, I, I can recognize like the things that failed in my life ended up being the greatest blessings in my life. And yet I still will sit today and worry about stuff. <laughs> it's such a waste. Mm, right. And isn't that, you're so, I love the way you speak, Casey, you really like catch capture things, but isn't that like the human conundrum that it's the condition, right? Like it, that ability to just sit back and trust our life and, and become the witness of it rather than constantly resisting the flow. You know, there really is a flow 
that is happening, even when it feels challenging, even when you're like, wait, this, this makes no sense. I mean, as I was going down the path into wellness and holistic health, I mean, I was ridden with self-doubt. There was nothing in me that like, that didn't seem logical to me at all. There was so much um, imposter syndrome and who am I to help people, even with my stories. It's so, it's like there was so much resistance and because of that, so much suffering along and, and resisting and pushing against the, this thing that was really calling me home, calling me to my purpose and calling me to this place that really feels now, you know, um, exactly where I belong. But yeah, there was so much resistance to it. And it's, it really is such a, an interesting, an interesting thing that, you know, that, yeah, why we resist so much, like we, we want to dictate everything so much. And I guess it comes back to that control. You know, there is that need to surrender and trust a little bit and, and get curious about the directions we're being pulled to, even if they make no sense to us at all. Right. Mm. Wow, that's really beautifully said. I love that. Um, I'm I'm curious, how did you address some of those things and start to build a little bit of confidence in yourself uh, to face that resistance, that imposter syndrome? How were you able to start to kind of um, change your viewpoint around that? Well, pretty early on, and again, this is like, there's so much that happened for me in New York. In fact, you know, I wasn't born or raised in New York City. My parents moved around a lot, but whenever people ask where I'm from, I say New York. One, it's I spent, you know, almost 13 years there. So it's the longest place I ever lived. I, li- I lived there my entire 20s and my early 30s. Um, but for me, I'm from there because that's really where I came alive. You know, that's really where I stepped into who I am today. So, you know, New York brought so much to me. And, and one of those things was mentors, you know, people who just, I feel really saw me saw me before I could see me and we're adamant about like putting a mirror up and going like, stop it. Look, this is who you really are. And, um, I ended up doing my yoga teacher training a few, I think I graduated. I was probably like 25 or 26 when I graduated with my first certificate, but I had gone into that teacher training only for myself, like only to, I had a lot of rage. So a lot of anger in me. Um, I was a self-cutter starting at age 12. So for me, going into a yoga teacher training was solely just healing medicine for me. I had zero intention to ever teach yoga. And I had this mentor when I graduated who I worked at the New York Open Center in uh, New York City, which is one of the largest urban holistic learning centers. And he just kept encouraging me. I really think you need to teach And specifically, I think you need to volunteer with this organization that I volunteer for. It's called the Lineage Project. And what they do is they bring uh, mindfulness to at-risk and incarcerated youth. And I was just like, well, one, no, I will not be teaching. And two, oh, no, 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 like no way. Like I, you know, that would, that just terrified me. Mm. But he really kept at it. And um, eventually I went in and I volunteered one day. And um, you go in and teaching teams, you never just like go in alone. And, you know, as a new person, I wasn't doing anything other than just observing. Uh, but a year later, I was still volunteering and I became pretty um, active with the, with the nonprofit, just volunteering and, and showing up and helping. And 
a year after volunteering, they actually came to me and said, we'd like to train you to be a lead teacher. And so I feel, um, you know, what, I guess the long story short is what helped me develop that confidence. And it, it, you know, it's an ongoing process, but was one having people in my life that believed in me, that, you know, encouraged me to move in a direction that I felt like, oh, no way. Who am I? How could I? There's no way. Um, so that mentorship is really key, whether that's a friend, you know, a teacher, a coach, a parent, a grandparent, um, you know, mentorship really seems to make a huge difference. There's a lot of scientific studies on this too, with resiliency and all sorts of stuff, just having people that believe in you and help you see your possible, you know, the possibility of your life, um, in a way that you might not be able to, to fully see it without that support. But then I just did it, you know, it was like, I think for me, you know, it was very, when I was encouraged to go volunteer with this organization and then they invited me to become a lead teacher it was like at this point now it was like who am I to say no mm. like now you know and so um really it was just doing it teaching like I always tell people I I now teach yoga teacher trainings and one of the huge aspects of my teacher trainings is in the realm of confidence and public speaking and really developing your own unique voice and talking about all the self-doubt and and what I refer to as our itty bitty shitty committee, you know, that voice that. inside your head. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's so funny because we call it the inner critic as if there's like one, but anyone with self-doubt knows we have much more than one voice. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like a whole a committee, committee. For sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so talking about that, um, I think one, just talking about it, like how we're doing it right now, Casey and, and, putting a name to it, like oh, self-doubt, not believing in myself and just being able to verbalize it and talk about it in community. And then hear, um, I, you know, hear other people say it and even hear people that you think like, wow, really you have self-doubt. Like I can't tell you how many times I've shared this story and my students have been like, what you? And I'm like, oh my gosh, to the point that like the first year of teaching, I thought I was having full on panic attacks, like wow. heart rate going a million miles an hour, sweating to the point that my shirt was soaking wet by the end of a 60 minute class, even though I wasn't doing the practice, wow. just nerves, you know, That's so, crazy. but I just kept doing it and doing it until, um, I started to really retrain my brain. Like I can survive this. I'm, I now have survived it 10 times, 11 times, 12 times. Um, yeah. And, but I, you know, I would say that mentorship and those conversations, those really vulnerable, open conversations and community, yeah. allowing yourself to be seen and heard and hearing other people and realizing like, even realizing people like your own mentors or people you look up to and admire, you get them in a real conversation. I guarantee you they're going to have stories of, oh man, this was really hard. And here's where self-doubt shows up for me even today. You know, and then all of a sudden you're like, wow, why am I letting, why am I letting this thing rule my life so much? Everyone has it. Mm. Like that everyone has it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. I think it would be easy for somebody to go to your beautiful website or see your offerings to see the the way that you teach your classes. It's just so unique and authentic and, and really confident. And they would just see like, oh, she just does this naturally. And they wouldn't see all the work and, you know, stepping up into that role that you had to do and all the people that helped you um, along the way. It's super interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about your current style that you teach? 
Yeah. So I, over the years, and you know, it was never intended. It wasn't like I sat down and was like, I'm going to create a style of yoga. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's actually years ago, I, cause I, I think I mentioned already in this podcast that I trained for about seven years in New York city, a Brazilian martial art called Capoeira. And so years ago, just again, because I'm a creative person, I think creativity started to naturally blend into uh, my teaching, right? So it's like, this is how I can be an artist still. So there's artistry to my stuff. And so I, I developed something many years ago called Yoga Era. It was actually quite popular. I made a DVD. People loved it. I did workshops around the world and it was integrating. It was a vinyasa flow, a traditional vinyasa flow class. Um, but I integrated capoeira movements and, um, yeah, it, it just integrated that. And so I did that for a while, but as I got older, I was like, I don't think this is it for me. Like, this isn't like, this is fun. This is unique. This is creative, but this isn't it for me. Like, I don't want to just spend my life teaching yoga. At a, it, you know, it's also very, um, physical. So it was limited. It wasn't open to a lot of people. Um, and so I just started to kind of mellow the practice out a little bit for my own self at first. Um, and, and then I started training in fascia work and learning more about the fascia and learning how to do self myofascia release. And wow, especially as someone who was an athlete, who was doing martial arts all the time, just like, wow, my body was already so well kept because of the yoga and most martial arts and athletes who don't do yoga, like all the people I did capoeira with were just like hurting all the time. And I was like, well, yoga, cause I, I would barely get injuries or barely hurt. And so I knew the yoga was really helping the asana and even the meditation, you know, all of that stuff was helping so much with my martial arts and my, my physical activities outside of yoga. And and then when I started learning about the fascia, though, that really opened things up for me and healed me on a whole nother level, um, not just physically, but there's so much mental components with that. And it just, it slowly started to unfold over time. Um, and then I came up with a name for it. For a while, it was just dynamic release method. Um, but now when I teach like workshops or in studios, I call it dynamic release flow. I think because for a while, dynamic release method people like thought it would be more therapeutic, but it's actually a vinyasa flow. It's just taught very slow, very intelligently. Um, we move almost like, like you're doing a Qigong practice. So softening in the joints um, and really moving from your center, the way I got trained in martial arts where everything originates from the center. So you can really start to find that levity in moving from posture to posture and really accentuating the breath, like the breath is boss in the movement and starting to tap into that more subtle energetic body. And then we close doing self-myofascial release with tennis balls. And it is the best. Wow. I love it. That sounds amazing. Yeah. That sounds awesome. I definitely want to talk with you about fascia. First, I just have to tell you this. This is just so funny. Um, so for the listener, like capoeira is like, it, it's, it's, it's a martial art, but like you wouldn't, you wouldn't like fight somebody 
like this. It, it's more like, it looks like a dance, a flow. It's really amazing. And, um, you know, when I was still in the church, um, I got called to serve a two-year mission and I was uh, called to serve down in Brazil. And that's where Capoeira comes from. And ah. yeah, so so the funniest thing, I, I was walking in the street and these two kids, they must've been like 10 or 11 years old. You could tell they were like getting in an altercation and started like pushing each other back and forth and were like yelling at each other. It was getting really intense. And then they broke into Capoeira poses and started like actually street fighting using capoeira. I've never seen anything like that before or after that. Crazy. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, that is hilarious that you say that because capoeiristas always joke around like the only way we would like turn this into a street fight is if we wanted to some someone to think we are totally crazy. <laughs> and then we'll just start jingaing because like the main move is this move called the jinga. And then they would be like, okay, I'm not fighting you because you're nuts. I'm out of here. <laughs> you know? And that's how we could win the fight. But yeah, it's, it's very beautiful and very acrobatic. And it is actually a fight. You know, back in the day, the, the slaves from Angola that got brought to Brazil were training that as a fight. And then they, the reason it looks so dancey is it was, that was used to disguise that they were actually training in a fight. Mm. So um, when their owners were going by, they were like, Oh, they're just doing some ritual dance. And so that they can continue to, that's why it's practice in a circle. Everyone circles them. There's two people in the center and then there's different styles of music. There's more of the fighting style music. And then there's more of the, the music where it gets really, really dancy. Uh, wow. Yeah. There's a lot of the history is super rich with Capoeira. That's so cool. But I didn't still, know any of that. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah. Like modern day now, no one's going to be like, I want to train Capoeira to really learn how to street fight. <laughs> I'd say you learn Capoeira if you want to learn like acrobatics and you want to learn yeah. music and you want to learn culture and language like that. That's the place to go. Man. It was by far the most beautiful street fight I've ever seen. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> so I am sitting next to anatomy trains by Thomas Myers. I'm also sitting next to fashion motion and becoming a supple leopard. This is stuff that we love talking about. Bethany does a form yeah. of myofascial release. It's called Rossiter. Um, it's very much like rolfing instead of using her hands, she uses her feet. And, you know, we've got mm. all these amazing posters in our home gym that show these lines of tissue connecting the tongue to the toes and one side of the body to the other side of the body. And people will, will come in with like knee pain or shoulder pain and Bethany can look at them, go to a completely different area of the body and, and help that person move and create like, like space out of nothing. Can you tell us a little bit about um, fascia, what it is and how you got so interested in it? Sure. Well, first of all, what it is, it's a connective tissue, a fibrous connective tissue that surrounds in, in individual muscles plus muscle bundles. And it covers our bodies from head to toe, like a bodysuit. You can think like Spider-Man. Um, the thickest part of that fascia is on the sole of the foot. That's called plantar fascia. Gosh, I mean, how I got interested in it, it was just years ago in New York City. Again, so much will be like, in New York City, I learned this. In New York City, this, you know, so I was, it's such a profound place for me. Um, I took a workshop. It was a self-myofit. Well, the first thing that got me into it is I did my Thai, Thai, um, Thai massage training in Thailand. And I really was like, whoa, body work. Like, this is interesting what it's doing for me physically. Yes, but I, where I always went with body work especially like deep stuff that really works with the fascia was what it was doing for me mentally and emotionally. Mm. That was really like 
that was what blew my mind because it was obvious, like, yes, obviously this stuff is working for the body, but whoa, like I'm like, and it's not just when I say what it was doing for me mentally and emotionally, I don't mean just in the moment. Like, yes, in the moments I felt this release, I felt this ease, I felt this surrendering, but I was finding that it was also impacting me long-term mentally and emotionally in the positive. So I think that's really what interested me. And then I took a workshop with, with self-myofascial release using uh, like therapy balls, these different size therapy balls. And I just went on a whirlwind after that and have been on it ever since just just what is this? What is this fascia thing? And, you know, I mean, you and your wife would know your wife, is it your wife, your yeah, partner, yeah, that's right. Yep. you would know if you, I mean, you just mentioned like anatomy trains, these are like great fascia resources, but even like a decade ago or so, there wasn't a whole lot of science on fascia. And there was just these really like strange kind of scientists, you know, um, coming out and doing the and talking about it, but it was still pretty new. Now we're hearing it a lot more, and there's a lot more science out. And I always suspected this, but now it's it is really happening, and I'm super excited to see what happens in the next 10, 20 years. But now they know that the fascia doesn't just surround muscles and muscle bundles, but it goes through the muscles. It actually goes through the muscles. And then what they know even more is it also goes through the nervous system. Mm. So you can imagine this is, this is literally intertwined through our entire body. So you release something like when we talk about having knots in the muscle, it's not a knot in the muscle, it's a knot in the fascia, or, you know, it's a, you can imagine like you pull a piece of thread and there's this taut area, right? In the, in the shirt now. Well, that's what happens when we have tension in our body and it feels like, oh, it's in the muscle, but it's, it's actually in the fascia and we can manually, you know, with hands or with the, uh, I use tennis balls, you know, that I use just like basic things to teach people so that it's really accessible. Like you don't have to go buy fancy, um, therapy balls, just tennis balls mm. uh, for the feet. I use, I use rubber balls, like kids, rubber balls, like, you know, kids used to play jacks. <laughs> um, <laughs> And use that to really start to um, kind of just even it out, massage it out. So when you're doing that, yes, on that like more um, surface level, you are impacting the body. And, and, and then if you're impacting the body and the muscles, you're impacting the joints. So there's so much science around the longevity of your body, your physical body, when you work with the fascia, but now they're doing all of this scientific research on well, what is this doing to your mind? What is this doing to your emotions? And since it is intertwined into the muscles and into the nervous system, the nervous system is directly related to our fight or flight, which is therefore related to trauma. And so they're finding that there is all of this science. And of course, it'll take years before science claims it, but there are studies now coming out that are showing that, you know, the fascia and doing work to release the fascia can help with releasing trauma that's stored in the body. And it's, it's just mind blowing. And from my years of working with it, absolutely. 100%, I would say my own, me being a case study myself and the hundreds of students I've worked with, it absolutely has an impact on us mentally and emotionally as well. Wow. That and, is, yeah, yeah. 
That's so amazing. I'm so glad you went there. That was actually going to be one of my questions. The, the people that we see oftentimes work in a seated position. So the body will help you adapt to that position more and more. And so hips kind of tip forward. The feet tend to kind of splay out a little bit. The shoulders are coming down and kind of rounded. The neck is rolling forward. Well, guess what kind of position that is? That is a trauma position. So it makes right. perfect sense. And I don't even know, you know, is it is it the trauma that causes it or vice versa? I think they all kind of like play together, don't they? And it, it it's almost like you yep. don't know where like the the cart and the horse are, but but they all act together. Absolutely. There was a saying in my school, IIN, you eat what you are and you are what you eat. So it's they it, they feed each other, right? Like we're gonna yes, absolutely what you said. Like we're gonna choose food based on our emotional state, right? Like if I'm really feeling really anxious and overwhelmed, I'm pro- like, unless I've really trained myself to, to access that more mindful state when I'm in a state of dis-ease, I might go choose just like, oh, I just need like a quick, like I'm going to go grab a burrito, like and put it in the microwave or something, right? Yeah. Versus like, you know what? I probably need more than anything right now is a tall glass of water and a really healthy salad. And so mm-hmm. it takes practice to actually go to that place when we're in disease. You know, I'm just giving this as an example with food and, and vice versa, you know? So same thing with the body. Like the body is trauma is going to start to create that. And then we continue to have that pattern in our body and that continues to manifest and hold it. It's holding it. Sure. Sure. Where the opposite yeah. is, you know, the, the shoulders are kind of down and back and the chest is up and your heart is open. And like one of our guests told us to look down and try to smile. And it's really hard to do when you look up and try to smile, it comes really naturally and easily. And it's such a different posture that's more open and, and available. And, you know, you can, you can smile at people, make eye contact. It's a totally different way to show up in the world. So cool. Oh yeah. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. Amazing. I wanted to ask you about the fulfillment formula. Can you tell us about the fulfillment formula and why you decided to create that? Yeah. Again, you know, I feel like so much of the things I created, this is me tapping into my creative side and using that and going, hey, I may not have become a traditional artist by choice. Um, and yet I am still an artist, right? And so how how can I start to to utilize that part of my, my being. And so for me, this was about how do I create a system that I can teach to people where they recognize that their life is their greatest masterpiece. And so this is where the fulfillment formula came from, which is so funny because I feel like it's this very like artistic, poetic thing that I teach, (laughs) but then it's called the fulfillment formula, but it just, the name came to me and it stuck and people said they liked it. But we have these nine categories of life, these nine essential categories of life, and each of them are attached to nine core aspirations of life. So um, to give you an example, like um, one of the categories of life is health and fitness, right? That's a really important category of life for all of us. And it's attached to the aspiration of vitality, And so my idea with this, and there's nine of them, is that no matter what anybody's individual goals are, no matter what anybody's individual aspirations are in that life category of health and fitness, and we're all going to have different ones, right? There's no, you, we have our own goals, our own aspirations within that life category, 
But what we're all after is one core aspiration, and that is vitality. And if we know that, what we can do is be much more aligned with the goals that we make so that we're not doing a bunch of should goals which happens all the time where people are like, okay, well, I want to lose weight. So I'm going to get up and go to the gym at 5 a.m., five days a week. And then, you know, at first they're really excited because they've made a new shift, but eventually they fall off because really that was a should goal. Because the thing is they don't feel vital, this person. Now, some people might be listening going, no, this is great. I feel totally vital getting up and being at the gym by five. I'm actually giving an example of a client. So, you know, this person did not feel good getting up early in the morning, being at the gym at 5 a.m. It just was a should, like, this is what I should do if I want to lose weight. And so she wasn't feeling vitality along the journey. And what I teach is if you're not feeling something along the journey, you're not going to feel that when you get to the outcome, the end goal. That's right. And then if you don't feel that when you get to the end goal, the outcome, it doesn't stick it or it doesn't feel fulfilling. You might have gotten what you wanted, but there's something that feels empty about it. And so what we need to do to really make art out of our life is that we, we need to create goals and aspirations that we feel that core aspiration along the way. So I started talking to her about it and she was like, you know, this is, I don't know if I'll do this. And again, a lot of times this will be something that you're resisting, (laughs) you know? And she's like, I, you know, I've always admired marathon runners. Oh no, I just think it's so cool. You know, and she just, and she started to light up talking about this. So anything, anyways, long story short, one thing led to another. She signed up for her first half marathon. By the end of this, she had developed new friends, she had, you know, this regimen that didn't even feel like a regimen, you know what I mean? Where she like would get up and do this stuff. But, and it, by the end, she didn't even remember that she originally started that to lose weight. She had lost the weight, but she had forgotten that's what, what it, she wanted to do because she was so fulfilled. Mm. She was meeting new people. She was having fun moving her body. She was fulfilled, Amazing. right? And so in that area. And so that's, that's where that that's the system. <laughs> wow. I love it. I love yeah. it. That great. You could go to that same marathon and have somebody do it for the wrong reasons. And you know, it feels amazing when you do it, but the next day when nobody cares about your Instagram pictures mm-hmm. or whatever, like if you're not, if you're not in the right mindset, you're going to be really let down. Like you said, it's going to feel really empty. Um, I think yeah. a big part of that is something really important that you talk about. And it's, it's like, it's the reason why I stayed in a corporate job feeling like totally stuck for years and years without, um, without like, like thinking about what I really wanted to be purposeful in my life and like starting this business as a, as an example, like, like why is it easier for us to do hard work versus doing deep work? What are the differences between the two and why, Mm. why would we rather do stupid stuff working hard when we're, when we're not working deep? Oh yeah. Um, well, it's funny that you say that because right away what popped in my mind is either choices, well, you know, just using this word hard, I guess, is um, which obviously you, you're familiar with this philosophy that I teach now, which is hard work versus deep work. But like whether we choose what we actually want to do, but scares us or feels like it's off base, doesn't make sense, there's going to be, and I'm saying this in quotations, there's going to be hard work doing that, of course. And a lot of people avoid it because like, oh, I, I don't know where to begin. This is so crazy. But if you continue to do what's familiar and the same, but it's 
literally eating at your soul. Isn't that hard too? Right. Right. And so it's like, what kind of hard work do you actually, you know, again, just using this word, I'll, I'll explain the hard work, deep work philosophy. But to me, I think that's what really got to me is like, either situation is going to have, um, you know, who talks about this super well is, um, oh, eat, pray, love. Oh my gosh. I can't believe her name is slipping my mind. Um, Elizabeth Gilbert. That's right. Yeah. She's talked about this before. Yeah. And maybe she doesn't talk about it in this book. And it also might be another author who actually talked about this, but where I heard it was from her. And she's like, in any career that you choose, there's always going to be a shit sandwich that you have to eat. So like your job could be a rock star. Like Casey, you could be a rock star and there's still going to be shitty aspects about that, you yeah, know? Totally. Um, like, ha- you know, having to maybe stay out late at night, to do your concerts, you know, like having these, you know, there's always something. And so she said, but what we have to do is decide which shit sandwich we're willing to eat because no matter what you choose, I love it too. Right. It's like, okay, there isn't this like perfect unicorn, um, life. And if we can first accept that, then I think the choices we make moving forward, um, become a lot more genuine. Mm. The, I was just going to say the, the hard work, deep work came from just me recognizing like the, the typical ways in which we're taught what is success, what is success. And, you know, success is this, you know, you want to measure it by extrinsic factors, accolades, the amount of money you make, things like that. And, and, And then also the other thing that I noticed is, you know, if you really want success, here's a saying we've all heard, all you need to do is work what hard, right? You hear that all you need to do is work hard and then you'll be successful. Mm. And then you also, then that teaches you that like, if someone's not successful, then clearly they don't work hard, (laughs) you know? Um, And, and if someone doesn't have my idea of what I think extrinsically they should have accolades wise, money wise, um, then they must not be successful. So success has completely been, been taught to us, at least in the Western culture, um, 100% measured by other people's ideas, right, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, and, and we don't really have this model of like what success is to us. And so, again, I really had just created this for myself because being a solopreneur and putting my work out into the world was really, really hard. And I noticed myself um, comparing myself to others. I noticed myself checking in, you know, with others, like constantly going outside of myself to, to define within myself, whether or not I was doing good, you know? And, um, so I just had created this kind of like balance sheet for me. And now I, you know, um, share it with people, which I'm happy to share it with, um, everyone who's listening to, I actually have like a PDF that I created that goes through, this entire philosophy and breaks it up. But to give an example is like, well, I already shared one. So hard work is someone who's driven by extrinsic gains and is constantly asking of life, what do I need to do to create that life? They're very much in what do I need to do because they're driven by extrinsic gains. But when you're coming from it from deep work, just kind of a change, a reframe is all I'm doing. I'm just reframing. Um, if you're coming from deep work, then you're driven by intrinsic gains. And so you're more so asking, who do I need to be to create that life? Mm. And so it's a, it's a different kind of, and it doesn't mean you're sitting back, but it's like, what, rather than what do I need to do? 
what kind of person creates that life? Mm. And then, and then you're diving into more character qualities and building your character. And it's just a different energy. So that's an example of one. Um, another one is like hard work thinks, uh, if I slow down, I'm going to fall behind while deep work thinks I'm going to slow down to speed up. Mm. Yeah. And so there's this whole kind of layout that I have that just gives you a reframe. And what I have found it does for me and the people I've shared it with is especially when we're in creation mode, whatever that is, you know, whether that is, um, starting a new business, writing a book, or even like, you know, making changes with the way you run your family, you're in creation mode, you're creating your life and you're really in it. And you're starting to catch yourself judging yourself. You're starting to doubt yourself. You're getting into that contracted place and you're starting to make decisions that are making you feel even more contracted. And then there's more self-doubts and more judgments. All you have to do is read this list and you'll be able to go, oh, <laughs> I'm over here doing this, 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 this and hard work. Let me reframe it and switch to deep work. You're still working, but now you're working from deep work rather than hard work. And it just changes. Like there's a, a lightness you'll feel in your shoulders and your chest. And it's like all of a sudden to me, the way I describe it is like, I feel like I come back into my body. I come home to myself. I'm like, oh, there you are. Hi, Amber. I missed you. All right, let's get to work, but from a, a different stance. Yeah. Wow. I love that. That's so well explained. What an amazing resource that can really help a lot of people. It's interesting to hear your story and hear all the people who encouraged you along the way ended up being your mentors. They really believed in you. How do you feel like you bring that to the people that you're working with today? Oh, well, I mean, I love to write. So a big part of I think, you know, and I, I hope, I hope to write many books one day. I'm working on a poetry book right now. Um, you know, again, this is like that idea of success. I'm 42 and, oh, you haven't even written your first book. And then I think, you know, some of the authors I admire the most didn't write their book until their late forties, their first book. Yeah. And many of those authors, and one of them is, um, Dwayne Wire. I think he was in his late 40s or he was in his mid 40s. He was somewhere in his 40s when he wrote his first book and he became a prolific writer starting in his late to mid 40s. Um, so it's like we really do need to reframe what success is. And I, I, I will write many books. And also I realized, you know, I didn't start writing books at 20 because it's just the way I work. It's like I'm, it's like I'm gathering, you know, I'm gathering all this wisdom. And then that first book that comes out is really going to feel like me versus like, I just need to get a book out before I'm 30, or I just need to get a book out before I'm 40, you know, um, which the world tells us we need to do, which will make you really extraordinary and really successful. Um, so, uh, you know, writing is a way in which, and I have a, a newsletter and a blog and people are always writing me saying like, wow, you're, you really explain that really well, which is so wild to me, Casey, because especially with having epilepsy as a young person and feeling like I didn't quite understand what was going on in the world or people didn't understand me, one of my self-doubts, and it still pops up, is that people don't understand me. Mm. So it's so interesting to have people come and say, you're so eloquent. You really explained something that was really challenging for me in a way that it landed. I really got it. Mm. Um and then I offer, you know, I, I, I teach yoga locally in my community. I offer a yoga teacher training, a 200-hour yoga teacher training, which is 
super in-depth. It's not just a yoga teacher training, but it's also a mindfulness-based leadership program. I have online programs. So there's so many ways I work with people. Um, and I love it. Yeah. Teaching, writing. <laughs> yeah, it's tremendous. I mean, this is this is why you are the perfect guest to be on the show is you your journey and and you know realizing how to blend the artistic with the physical and the mental and the spiritual and putting it all together in a way that's really authentic to yourself is really beautiful. And I've read some of your writing and it's fantastic. And even something as simple as an Instagram post. I read this morning a post you made that talked about whispers of the unimaginable horizon. And I thought <laughs> that was so beautifully captured. Um if you don't mind, can you can you tell us the wisdom that you learned from that phrase hearing that recently? Oh gosh, yeah. I, I literally just posted that today, huh? Yeah, yeah, just a few hours ago. Yeah. <laughs> um okay, so let me just go to that. Um and I mean go to that like in my mind. So I had I was doing research. So I I have this membership called Ritual and we meet two times a month virtually. And it's actually, we meet two times a month to do embodied work. So we'll meet around the new or full moon, uh, around, we meet like around or on the new moon and we meet around or on the full moon. And so we have a full moon ceremony coming up and we do breath work. We always do journaling. Like I give writing prompts, which is embodiment work. So actually writing and journaling is really profound embodiment work. So we do that. And then we will do some breath work or, uh, um, or dynamic release flow. Um, and I was doing research on the full moon and this woman, this astrologer was talking about that. And she actually said those words, whispers from the unimaginable horizon, which I was just like, wow, those words are so beautiful. But what she was saying about that is the unimaginable horizon, and especially like you hear that. And I think the body and the mind go right away to the seductiveness of like of challenge and and fear and worry and worst case scenarios but what she was actually saying is the whispers are we have to slow down calm down still ourselves enough to actually hear the whispers from the unimaginable horizon which is actually all the things that are beautiful that are coming into our life in the future that we don't know yet. All the people, the relationships, the projects, the experiences, it's unimaginable because the mind just doesn't go there, right? We have the negativity bias when we think about the future. It's like, oh, worry, you know, but there's all of these beautiful, beautiful things that are coming into each and every one of our lives in the near future. And but for us to, to be with that in the present moment, we have to slow down enough, calm down enough to actually hear the whispers. It's like, I imagine it like, cause she says the horizon, like a soft wind blowing through your hair. And it's like, almost like a kiss from a future partner or something mm. or a future child or, or a book you'll write, you know, in the future. It's actually making me tear up a little bit. It's like, Oh, it's this really peaceful feeling. That's amazing. So well captured. I'm so glad she said those words and I'm glad that you pass that message along. It's so cool. We have talked about so many different things. If you had to leave the listener with one simple tip from this conversation, what would you want them to take with them on their journey to help them out? Well, I think a way to capture <laughs> all of the depth that we went into is uh, something I say in every single yoga class I ever teach 
and I've been saying it for probably 16 years, is notice what you're noticing and feel what you're feeling. Mm. If there's only one thing you take away from my class, it's that. That's and amazing. so I guess that, that, you know, just notice, like, I, I think we spend so much time not noticing what we're noticing, not feeling what we're feeling. And so we become disembodied. And when we're in that disembodied place, what we are is we're actually in our body. We are still in our body, but from our neck up, we're in our heads and we're worrying and we're, um, we're going into this kind of worst case scenario. And again, it's not to avoid look and some noticing what you're noticing and feeling what you're feeling is sometimes very challenging. And so it's actually an invitation even into that, like not running away from that, but also sometimes what you're noticing and sometimes what you're feeling is beautiful, mm. right? Sometimes it's beautiful and sometimes it's brutal. And we are most human when we can be with whatever is right in front of us. Wow. And yeah. Yeah, I I absolutely love that. That's a, a great way to say that, an amazing way to end this conversation. You have so many things to offer people. Where can they go to find your work and connect with you? Yeah, um, well, ambercampion.com is my website. And so all my world is there. Um, they also have, which I'll give you for the show notes, the exact links to, for instance, that um, Deep Work versus Hard Work documentary, or not documentary, I wish it was a documentary. <laughs> <laughs> one Document. day, one day. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but on my on my regular website, ambercampion.com, if they scroll through, there are so many beautiful little gifts that I have there. Of course, they would join my email list, but I always tell people they'll probably enjoy it because I don't just like send out um, ads or something I'm actually writing, but they could always get the gift and then unsubscribe if they didn't like it. Um, I have an embodiment practice, keep the channel open. I have, um, uh, an inner self mastery. It's a success guide for those who think differently. Actually, that's what, uh, your listeners will get. And then, um, socially, I spend most of my time on Instagram, so they can also find me at Amber Campion on Instagram. And I also have a YouTube channel that. There's quite a bit of stuff up there. I'm not so regular with it, but I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah. We will link to all of that in the show notes. Amber Campion, founder of Dynamic Release Flow and the Fulfillment Formula. Thank you so very much for um, giving us the honor of getting to chat with you, getting um, to learn all about you know physical, mental things in our lives that we can um, take ownership of and improve and do work on. And we're just so grateful for all of it and so grateful for you that you'd come on our show today. So thank you very much. It's been an absolute honor. Thank you, Casey. Absolutely. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio.